Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud on a day which was certainly not your usual budget day. Um, Tito Mboweni's emergency supplementary budget, which he described as a bridge to the October medium term budget when we will find out more of how the government is going to make these numbers work over the next three years. And I have with me this evening two of my favorite economists, Nazanira Muller of 91 and Peter Artard Montalto of Intellidex, as well as one of my favorite editors, Rob Rose from the Financial Mail. And let me start with you, Nazanira. Overall impressions of today's budget. Hilary, I think we are facing some pretty dire fiscal situation as a country. And in those constraints, I think the finance minister did a really good job. I mean, there's quite high execution risks on the budget, but what's on paper, I think, was very good. Peter, brief so impressions? We were presented with two alternative scenarios where the Treasury didn't really want to say that this active case was fully its baseline. They said that Cabinet was committing to that, but clearly Cabinet hasn't made the really difficult choices to achieve that yet. And so I think the market was sort of left somewhere in between. Neither scenario is particularly credible, um, but we have to wait, as you say, for the MPPS to see that uh, those tough measures coming through, to see the results of that MTF negotiation process uh, and which line we'll actually end up on. Rob Rose, anything that surprised you? Anything that surprised the market? Uh, had had well, the finance minister prepared us for the sort of rather devastating numbers which he presented? Yeah, it was devastating. I mean, it was a lot like some of the budgets he's given before. It's just the picture he paints isn't a pretty one, and there's no way that he's trying to sugarcoat it either. He just says this is the way it is, and we have to, we have to work around it. But I feel like, um, having read the... Fantastic piece that Nazmira's written for us. I know more about it, so I can speak semi-intelligently. And I think it's important for what was left out as well. Um, there was no sense that there's been major concessions to the unions on on wages um, and in terms of driving up the public sector wage bill. I mean, that seems important. Um, you know, as, as well as the fact that SAA wasn't wasn't specifically named, the, the new amount of money it'll take to to start the new national airline. So I suppose those are... Those are two positives, I think, from this. Nazmira, debt is our burden. Debt is our weakness, I think the finance minister said. And he outlined, as, as, as Peter points out, he outlined these two scenarios, um, active and passive. And the figures show the sort of active scenario. Um, now, what does that look like? Um, and how likely is it that government will succeed in going that route? So the active scenario has government debt to GDP peaking at about 87% of GDP in 2023, 2024, so three years time. Um, the passive scenario where no significant changes are taken sees us heading towards 100% of GDP in that same time period. So quite a big divergence. And the big difference between the two is quite a large cut to expenditure over the course of the next two years. Yes, so in addition billion. to the 160 billion yeah. rands that they've taken out of the wage fall in February that was announced then, they'd announced 160 billion rand reduction in wage growth over the this year and the next two years. They also, in the supplementary budget, plan for another 230 billion rands to be taken out of spending. So that's 390 billion rands in the next two and a half years, which is quite a lot of money, Hillary. Surely that in itself weighs on the economy. I mean, that is, that is pretty austere, no? 
It is pretty austere. So the, the fiscal impulse will be negative. But I think that the um, experience of Ireland after the global financial crisis showed us that if a country takes steps to stabilize its government debt to GDP and its debt profile and removes that worry of an impending um, sovereign default from the situation, and with that also implement structural reforms, you can actually return to growth quite quickly. I think it would be far more harmful for us and far more harmful for any prospect of investment if there was this perpetual concern of the sovereign being one year or two years away from default. Lucania, welcome. Markets responded initially quite negatively but seemed to calm down a little bit later. I mean, did this take everyone by surprise? Yeah, hello. I mean, initially, I think on the bond market, I think the yields went up a little bit, about seven basis points. And by the end of it, they were down about 15 basis points, I think, on a 10-year. Maybe Nazmira might have some uh, inputs in, into that. But but, it, but I was supposed to, like, I mean, we can't read too much in, into trading in a, one afternoon. I mean, if you, if you still look at the spreads you know, between the 30s and the 20-year bonds, I mean, you, you still have a lot of concern. The yield curve is quite steep, so I don't, I don't think that's going to change. In the short term, I think that, that expresses that concern about what, what happens. Like Nasbira was talking to me, if, if you continue having this risk about what's going to happen, what the government domination that was there in Europe like all those years ago. So it's going to take a while. I mean, there's a good budget in a sense, calm things down, but I think, but there's nothing concrete there. I think we still have to worry about implementation risks. So a, a lot of this is based on good news that might, that probably won't come as, as far as expanding like cuts, for example. You know, Peter, the government is already in court with the labor unions now. You know? Peter, I, I'm going to come to you with the, the sort of funding side of it. Um, these deficits, these debt ratios, you've got, what is it, 300 billion more uh, needed in funding for the, just the current year uh, than, than had been expected in February. I mean, where is this money going to come from? Not, in, not just this year and next year. And is it possible to even fund these budgets? So the initial, I think, uh, or rather during the speech, there was a slight positive market reaction because actually the amount of SAGB issuance that they were looking for That's dips next bonds, year. Peter, yes, yeah. Yeah, which <laughs> basically dips as a result of uh, using a lot of cash. Um, and the uh, cash levels are going to fall to lower than expected to around 110 billion uh, rand. And there was also a huge increase actually in T-bill issuance uh, for this year to plug a gap, which again was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, so the funding mix here is surprising market a little bit and supports the SAGB code at the very margin. But I think the problem is the funding mix is really being built off the back of this active case. Uh, and if we have some surprise to the downside, probably slightly more worry on that front on the revenue side than necessarily on the expenditure. Though, as, as Nazmira was saying, a, a huge amount of uh, cumulative cuts now being parceled through. Um, you know, I think that those funding figures are, are going to be looking worse. And as a result, that slight dip being penciled in for SAGB issuance actually probably doesn't happen for next year, next fiscal year. We probably actually see uh, flat or increased SAGB issuance. Peter, the, the minister made the point that, that, that this, the, the kind of borrowing that's needed consumes the country's entire sort of savings pool. Um, and we therefore have to get money from abroad. Uh, what are the risks to to that? What are the risks to South Africa given the need to get that money from abroad? 
Well, that's the problem. I mean, there is so much to fund in the economy or there's so much infrastructure to fund as well beyond the simple budget deficit um, with a limited pool of savings, particularly now in sub-investment grade. Uh, the amount of inflows that you can see from foreigners is is going to be reduced, at least on a sustainable basis. Yes, you can get some short-run hot money flows uh, coming in. Um, but that's why to plug the gap, you have to move uh, to this IFI financing, the $4.2 billion uh, from the uh, RFI from the IMF that's being debated by the executive board through July, um, the NDB financing, all this sort of stuff that's now having to be to be sought. But all of that is one off, uh, this conditionality free money. Uh, if you exhaust those sources, you're going to have to start turning to the much, much more politically challenging um, forms of uh, conditionality based lending, such as an SBA from the IMF, uh, such as uh, the CRA from the NDB. All this is much, much more complicated uh, politically. Rob. One of the things that struck me was that the, the spending side of it didn't seem to offer much. I mean, it offered no more than we already know about. And the money sort of almost came down to less than we thought was in the so-called stimulus package. Um, you know, is yeah. government doing enough? I mean, I, it's hard to say based on what they presented today. I just don't think that there's enough to make that kind of um, reach that kind of conclusion. I mean, I think that the you know, the extra money for the, for the land bank was, was small. I don't think there were, there was major um, uh, revenue decisions that are taken with massive implications. I think the, the provinces, certainly from the Western Cape and some of the others who've already put out statements about it, expected a lot more assistance, especially around the virus than came through this, this budget. So I think that's going to be, that's going to be challenging. Um, the, I think that's the right question. I mean, have they done enough? Yeah, Nazmira, have they done enough? I mean, because as I read it, the, the, the kind of new money that government's actually putting in to, to sort of provide support in the COVID crisis was $145 billion, And most of that came from cutting other budgets. Um, and some of the items which we thought they were spending on, such as the social grant, they'd even cut the allocation. I mean, is, is government, globally, governments are, are spending big time to provide relief and support during the crisis. Is our government rather underdoing it? Henry, I think they're in a very difficult situation. So I had the same experience you did. If you start to look through um, the details, there does seem to be a lot of reallocation in the spending rather than new spending, even in areas where we thought there was spending. And I share Rob's concern that I think some of the provinces are going to find it quite difficult to fund um, their healthcare spending as a result. Um, however, I think we also need to bear in mind that we went into this crisis with very little fiscal room. So I think that what the Treasury is trying to do is um, make the best of a, of a really bad situation at this point in time by still keeping fiscal impulse positive this year. Um, I would have hoped there was room to do a little bit more than we've seen, um, but when you go through their numbers, they don't seem implausible. They have 305 billion rand short. We don't have the luxury of printing money um, because we have a significant question mark ar around our sovereign debt sustainability. So in those circumstances, I think they've done the best on a bad situation. We're going to take a short break and we will come back after the break and talk about uh, should we be printing money? Printing money. Um, Lukanyo Mnyanda, 
should the Reserve Bank be printing money to fund the deficit? Well, <laughs> I think that's, you know, did this start on that point before before the break? I mean, if you we have to I mean, give if you're going to do answer. that at a time. At, at a time when there's a big question marks about your debt sustainability, when you have like a soft currency like the like the rent, and I mean trying to supply the market with more of it at this time and in these kind of conditions. I mean, it, I mean it's, it's been quite a fascinating debate. It's almost like the, the, there's 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 sort of normal rules of economics, but demand and supply have stopped existing in some people's heads. That you can actually, you know, take a currency that's hardly like the most demanded in the world and then print more of it and then somehow make yourself wealthy that way <laughs> i mean if it was just if it was that easy like surely there'd be no poor country in the world you would think the finance minister i suppose has already mouthed argentina and venezuela and so on so i suppose he's kind of warning us but i wanted one of the one of the ways that mentioned in the speech and certainly has been strongly suggested is that that the government has simply got to draw on private sector funding and it's defined the infrastructure drive as a big plank in the recovery and we had this kind of showpiece summit symposium roundtable um, yesterday at which the president launched the sustainable infrastructure development symposium i think summit peter um what came out of the summit because i was trying to find you know a list of projects or a series of commitments by the private sector to fund infrastructure and i have to say i couldn't find it were you were you impressed were you unimpressed with yesterday's proceedings so we've been tracking this very closely working with infrastructure funders both onshore and offshore since this process was launched uh, after the SONA in, in February and the uh, IIO that Ramagopa is, uh, is uh, heading uh, was appointed through the end of last year. And what we sort of saw yesterday, I think, is the private sector come and say we have all these funds uh, to spend on decent bankable infrastructure. Uh, we saw a smattering of decent projects, but not really the full detail. We're waiting for those to be gazetted by Tuesday uh, was the promise. Uh, and but somehow the whole machine just didn't sort of add up. And I think that's because the deep underlying issues have not really been solved uh, on things like PPP reform, uh, on the PFMA and MFMA changes. And there was actually a very bizarre moment uh, where I was trying to listen into two of these rooms yesterday at the same time. Now, as Mira was talking on the one hand in one room about the need for energy reform, and Minister Mantasha, on the other hand, was actually increasing investor uncertainty uh, about the whole energy space. Uh, and it was completely bizarre. And I think that just really crystallizes this point, point that this infrastructure machine is sort of waiting, but it's not all joined up. And as a result, we'll see some investment coming forward, but I think it'll be pretty slow. We can't really pencil it into GDP uh, and into a recovery. Nazmira, you were on the panel. I mean, is, is money the problem? Is a shortage of funding for infrastructure the problem with, with, with infrastructure? You were certainly suggesting yesterday that that was not the problem. I don't think there's a shortage of private sector funding. I mean, what I liked about the way Dr. Ramakopa, but also the president approached pro projects was there's a clear division between um, projects that can be commercially financed projects that require some measure of de-risking, so need some measure of blended finance, but a large proportion can be privately financed, and then projects that require public funding. And I think the first two are areas that we should start to focus on. So if, if that's the case, I don't think there's a shortage of money to finance the projects in the short term. It's about that regulatory uncertainty that Peter's talking about. That is about how do we um, actually get projects done. And I think the first step is prioritize. 
and I think it needs to be done um, sectorally. So one of um, my colleagues in the industry, Heather Jackson, was on another panel, and she's very strong on this. It's, it's, it's not about some overarching legislation that can work across everything. It's about removing the blockages in specific sectors. So my advice is pick two or three sectors um, and, and just work on resolving those. If Dr. Ramachopa's office can do that over the course of the next six to 12 months in renewable energy, for example, that would be a major win. Lucania, this is this. I mean, this feeds into this whole narrative of structural reforms, and I'm sure one of the kind of bottom line analyses on on the budget is going to be from just about everybody. The only way out of this complete disaster is to get growth. Now, how likely is it that the kind of fiscal numbers, the state we find ourselves in, will prompt some structural reforms, regulatory reforms, to happen to boost growth? You know, I, I think uh, Peter and I will write about this every week, don't we? Like, always saying the same thing, you know? I think that the, the DG today is all saying the same thing, you know? I think he actually made the point that the, that the choice is not between raising taxes or borrowing. He said that the, the choice is really about boosting the economy. I think, he, I think he used the word growing, growing, growing the economy like three times. I think that's what we need to do, but, we, but then, as always, the proof is always what happens afterwards. I mean, we know that we all agree with uh, Minister Mbawani. Like, we, we all we all thought his document last year was good, but how much of it would actually ever see implementation? And I'm pretty sure I haven't seen the reactions now from COSATU and SACP, for example. But I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of swear words about neoliberalism and all these kind of things. So, like, you never really get the sense that we actually, as a country, we can we can actually build the consensus that we need to to actually get these things going. Rob, you've been almost watching growth from the corporate side, the sort of failures of EdCon, some of the corporate hit that that this crisis is is wreaking. Um, You know, what does this look like and what kind of reforms would we need to prevent more of a bloodbath in the near term, Um, that is? Well, I mean, I do think that all we need is we don't I don't think we need new ideas necessarily. We need to implement the ideas we've had. Uh, for ages, I think, you know, implementation has been the issue for ages, and I think that's the issue. But, you know, jobs, you know, you look at EdCon, it's going, it's, it's now, there's possibly a way to save it from business rescue, some of the stores, but not every store will be, you know, will continue, and there will be massive job losses. And look at the quarterly labor force survey that came out yesterday, I think, I mean, it's 30.1% on the, on the and official... And that's before the crisis. That's before the COVID crisis really hit. And the expanded definition is 39.1% before the crisis. So, I mean, jobs is, is, a, is a critical issue for for just our social structure. And, and I think Lucania is right. I mean, the unions, there will be plenty of tension that, that hasn't been resolved in this budget. Um, and that will certainly come up in the next few months. Peter, how do we save jobs? Can we save jobs? Peter? I think he's frozen. I think Peter's frozen. He's gone. Nazmira, I'll have to ask you the question. Or his screen is one of them. His screen is frozen. It's, it's a good look to be frozen. I think for the public sector, we need to control the wage bill. And given the sheer size of the expenditure cuts that need to be made, 
um, you actually need to start thinking about wage cuts in the public sector, which is quite unpalatable. They've been happening quite broadly across the private sector, but I think that they're quite unpalatable in the public sector. So I think if I was the president, the first step um, is politically difficult, but I think the unions would be very receptive, is um, to look at consolidating ministries. Because if you're going to cut the wage fall for the rank and file, you need to show that senior management is leading from the front. And therefore, we have far too many ministers and deputy ministers. We have far too many DGs. If we cut government departments, that is the best negotiating position the government can have in order to start negotiating what Ireland did in 2011, cut the wage ball. And hopefully we can do that by actually cutting wages rather than cutting jobs because we can't afford to lose more jobs than we need to at this point. I'm actually wondering that the kind of zero-based budgeting and back-to-back, -back, the kind of budget cuts that, that uh, the finance minister is talking about, do they not need a look precisely at, uh, at the kind of that structure of government where you've got multiple departments, multiple empires? Look, Anjo, um, is there any possibility that, that this, the sort of the fiscal thing might actually prompt a rethink of the structure of government itself, which was promised admittedly when President Ramaphosa came into office, but has yet to really happen? No, as you say, Hillary, I mean, it's, it's been promised before, so I'm not sure whether this is like the silver bullet that's going to deliver it. I mean, even this is also going to be subject to a lot of political contestation, so it's not going to somebody decides and, and, and then it just happens. I mean, it's one of the ironies here, but, you know, but, but by refusing to deal with the whole issue of the wage bill or, like, or, or, or the wages of existing workers, it means actually you're having austerity elsewhere. Uh, you're having austerity in terms of actual services because, it, because you're paying the people who are in government more so that means then you can hire more nurses or more teachers or more police people. It's, it's, it's really quite like self-defeating. And, uh, and you'd hope at some point like somebody in Kosatu or somebody somewhere will actually get that message. But, but it doesn't seem to get through. And, then, and, and, and obviously the government does not really have the appetite for a big fight with the unions. So like, I'm not really sure where we, where we go. Like, I, I mean, I hope it does, but, but I'm not very hopeful in, in that it will actually translate into actual implementation. Peter, welcome back. We lost you. Uh, Peter, th the question we'd asked was, how do we save jobs? Can we save jobs in the near term? Well, I think the real problem we're seeing is, so in the NEDLAC um, Presidential Working Committee after the Job Summit, these debates go round and round in circles of everyone trying to pass uh, the buck and Labour in particular asking for uh, a lot of you know, detailed uh, uh, you know, requirements on not firing anyone. Uh, through the crisis. And really, you know, I think this is about creating new jobs where you need a green industrial revolu revolution in particular, uh, where you need to unlock. Uh, you can't control this process from the center. This needs to be an uncontrolled creation of jobs, which you can do um, through things like a green revolution, um, through uh, shifting the cost of doing business as well, and particularly from you know, allowing firms to leapfrog this informal, formal sector boundary. But you can't, I think the fundamental answer is you can't uh, control this from the center. Oh, Peter, I'm going to give you the last word on the budget. We've just got a couple of minutes left. As the market sort of mulls over today's budget um, and looks at the figures, which usually takes a couple of days, is the reaction going to be more negative or more positive? What kind of reaction do you think we're going to get as the numbers are crunched? Well, remember, we didn't have a lockup this time uh, for analysts or for journalists. So I think there's a lot of mulling over to go. Treasury's promised maybe to do a call with analysts next week. 
Um, but yes, it's going to take some time to think about this. And it's ultimately all about credibility, which is obviously a much softer issue than just simply you know, adding up the numbers. Um, I think the initial reaction today from too many people in the market was to trust this, uh, this active scenario, whereas in fact, we do come somewhere in between. Um, and I think that's really going to be the debate. So I think people go probably through this evening a little more positive and that sort of uh, melds away in the coming days. Nazmira, with one minute to go, positive or negative in the next few days as the market mulls? I think the market went into this budget pretty negative. The pre-release came, that came out of Nedluck was looked pretty awful. Um, and I think that a lot of the bad things people were fearing, like a big increase in issuance, um, more money going to SOEs that didn't really have viable plans, um, Treasury budgeting and increase in the wage bill this year just didn't happen. And that explained a lot of the price action today. I think the forward-looking impact is going to be about um, the rhetoric that you hear from alliance partners, particularly the unions, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Thank you very much. That wraps it up. All we have time for. Please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.